The Leslie Marshall Show, a true democracy in talk radio. Of, for, and by you, the people. From our nation's capital, it's Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. Welcome to Deadline DC. I'm Brad Bannon. I'm a Democratic strategist, a columnist for the Hill in Washington, DC, and a political commentator for news radio stations, KNX in Los Angeles, and WGN in Chicago. My company, Bannon Communications Research, polls for progressive issue groups, labor unions, and Democrats. The sponsor of today's show is BannonCR.com. If you want to learn more about me and my political polling company, or if you have any suggestions or ideas for Deadline DC, the best way to reach me is on Twitter. My Twitter handle is Brad Bannon, all one word. Welcome to all of you watching me on Twitter or Periscope. Now everyone can watch the show by going to periscope.tv front slash Brad, Brad Bannon, all one word. That's periscope.tv front slash Brad Bannon. Today we'll talk about the campaign to end police violence. Our guests today are Ed Chung from the Center for American Progress. Montgomery County, Maryland Council Member Will Joando and progressive political activist Mark Grimaldi. Our guest in this half hour is Ed Chung, Vice President for Criminal Justice Reform at the Center for American Progress, where he co-hosts the Tent Podcast. Before working at the Center for American Progress, Ed served as a senior advisor on criminal justice policing and civil rights issues for the Assistant Attorney General of the Office of Justice Programs at the U.S. Department of Justice. Ed also held positions in the Department of Justice's Civil Rights Division, including Special Counsel to the Assistant Attorney General and Federal Prosecutor with the Criminal Section, where he received the John Marshall Award for successfully prosecuting the first case under the Matthew Shepard and James Byrd Jr. Hate Crimes Prevention Act. Ed's uh, Twitter handle is EdChungDC. Uh, the uh, handle for the podcast is the Tent Pod. Ed, welcome to Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. Brad, thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. It's a pleasure, and it's uh, with your experience in uh, the Justice Department, it's certainly an appropriate time to have you on the show uh, to discuss the turmoil uh, in America these days. First of all, uh, today. Uh, House Democrats, uh, the Democratic leadership in the House and the uh, Black Caucus uh, introduced a package of reforms uh, geared to uh, combating uh, police violence. Can you talk about those proposals a little bit? Yeah, the proposal is a pretty large proposal. It's a comprehensive one, and it I think it does a, a really good job of uh, addressing some of the issues that not only we're seeing currently uh, with regard to what happened with uh, George Floyd and the killing of George Floyd, 
but also some of the issues that we've had with police reform in general. And so the uh, bill has uh, includes in there things like uh, it uh, allowing um, federal prosecutors to prosecute cases where uh, police officers use excessive force and are reckless about it. Right now, under federal law, you have to prove that uh, the officers intentionally want to violate the law. And that's a very high standard, so it makes it a little bit more difficult, or actually, I should say, a lot more difficult to prosecute officers for excessive force and police brutality at the federal level. Um, it allows, uh, expands the Department of Justice's ability to uh, conduct pattern and practice cases against police departments for their, uh, for basically failing in a lot of ways to fail to uh, uh, keep officers accountable, fail to have proper training and procedures. Uh, and it also does a lot of things when it, when it comes to incentivizing uh, the banning of chokeholds um, to uh, things like data collection, to making sure that training is not just some, something that is incentivized, but that is required now by federal grants. So it's a very wide ranging bill. And over the course of the coming days uh, and weeks, we expect that bill to uh, be, be modified and refined um, and uh, put in better shape uh, as the uh, as the committees uh, look to take it up. Now, last week I read that uh, House uh, the House Minority Leader, uh, Mr. McCarthy, said uh, the uh, Republican Caucus uh, was also uh, thinking of uh, reforms. And so my question to you is, how much of this uh, are House Republicans likely to go along with? And if the House does work out something and pass something, what are the prospects for getting a vote in the Senate uh, or even a hearing of the bill in the Senate under the uh, from the uh, majority leader, Mitch McConnell? Well, I think uh, I, I'm really curious to see what uh, what Leader McCarthy is going to uh, put out there, because uh, Republicans in Congress, um, well, we just haven't seen anything from them. And so I'm just, I'm just curious to, to see what this is going to look like. I will say, you know, criminal justice reform generally uh, over the last several years has been has had bipartisan interest. Um, but the interest from uh, some from from conservatives has generally not been on policing. What they are tending to focus on are things like policing, sorry, prison reforms and reentry. There's been a few on policing when it comes to things like civil asset forfeiture reform or the taking of property during an arrest without uh, without an actual conviction and things like that. But when it comes to generally policing reform and systemic reform that has to happen in departments and in the policing profession across the country, uh, we haven't seen conservatives really step up uh, in a big way on, in that way. So um, whatever happens, I, I think what's, what's going to be passed out of the House is going to be a very strong bill. Um, and I, I, I'm, I'd welcome you know, this to be a very strong bill that everybody can support, um, but it probably isn't something that I think we can see uh, as, a, as a pathway forward, as is, um, when it comes to what the Senate or what uh, the president will sign. Yeah, I suspect you're right about that, Ed, although even if it never gets consideration in the Senate, I think it is a bold proposal. Uh, and I applaud the House leadership and the Black Caucus in the House for pushing this forward, uh, because I think these issues deserve an airing. And at least uh, during House consideration of the bill, even if there's no Senate action, uh, I think this is a worthwhile cause. And Brett, can I, can I just jump in there? I think you make a really great point here because, um, you know, there's a lot of times when legislation, as you well know, you're a veteran of, of the city and of, of Congress and an observer of Congress. I mean, you you 
you know that these things usually aren't uh, immediately done, right? These big pieces of legislation take time to do. I think what we want to see from Congress is more urgency and the understanding that these are big pictures. We can't focus on small things like bad apples and uh, just incentivizing. We, we want to see bold proposals and we want to see Congress have the commitment to do that. So I appreciate the fact that you mentioned that you know there is a lot of good that can come out of a national hearing, having the legislature, the national legislature, Congress, uh, really put these issues front and center. Okay. Uh, let me ask you this question. You're a veteran. You worked in the Department of Justice during the Obama administration. Uh, how do you think uh, Barack Obama's response to the uh, demonstrations across the country would have been different from Donald Trump's responses? Yeah. So I, I can just tell you that fr in, in 2014, when Ferguson, uh, the protests in Ferguson started after the killing of Michael Brown, uh, this was an all Department of Justice approach. This was really an all administration wide approach. Any relevant agency from the Department of Justice to the to uh, the Department of Labor, to the Department of uh, Homeland, uh, sorry, uh, Health and Human Services, uh, just HUD. All of these agencies were working together on not supporting communities, on policing reform. And uh, that was the response within the Department of Justice. Any relevant component. Uh, I mean, that, it was all it was an all hands on deck approach. And I think that's the thing that we're missing here in the Trump administration, not only that it is not an all hands on deck approach, but I'm not sure if there are any hands in any of these agencies yeah. that have responded in any kind of way. And that's really problematic and troubling the absence of the void from the uh, from the federal government. Well, besides program program programmatically, how was the tone of Barack Obama's approach to Ferguson different uh, from Donald Trump's uh, tone during uh, recently. Yeah, I mean, every time the, the president spoke, uh, this is President Obama speaking, you saw him not only be uh, conscientious and thoughtful, but you saw him talking about people and to the people directly, not not in some kind of you know self-aggrandizing, self-centered kind of way um, and trying to deflect. And, you know, there are a lot of you know, folks who uh, agreed with his policies, some that didn't. But I don't think that you could say that President Obama wasn't uh, genuinely concerned and genuinely invested in those types of things that were happening around the country and what the federal government could do. And I think what you saw was, you know, you saw. Well, and I'm going to have to interrupt you because we're going to break. We get back from break, we'll have more with Ed Chung from the Center for American Progress and a former official in the Justice Department under President Barack Obama. Stay tuned, we'll be back soon. Welcome back to Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. Our guest in this half hour is Ed Chung, who is uh, from the Center for American Progress. Uh, he also served in the Justice Department under President Barack Obama. And let me ask you about something that I saw trending on Twitter the other day. Defund the police. Uh, yesterday, uh, the mayor of Minneapolis, uh, Jacob Fry, uh, was uh, speaking to a group of uh, demonstrative protesters uh, in Minneapolis. And they kept chanting, defund the police. And they said, "How?" you know, they asked the mayor, do you, are you in favor of defunding the police? Uh, 
Uh, and he said no, he wasn't. Um, and he was promptly booed for saying no. Uh, he did say he was in favor of major structural reform in the police department uh, to combat uh, police violence. And so uh, I guess my question is, uh, and, you know, uh, last week, uh, I think uh, Mayor Garcetti of Los Angeles announced that he was directing $150 million dollars uh, from the uh, police department to community jobs and health care programs. I gather today uh, Mayor de Blasio in New York City announced something similar. Um, and I guess uh, my question is, is it dangerous um, to be uh, taking money away uh, from police departments, much less defunding them, which sounds rather you know, terminal uh, at a time when uh, we've had all this conflict in the streets. Um, and does it make sense to take money out of police protection uh, and use it for programs that may prevent violence in the first place? What do you think, Ed? Well, first of all, I think one of the things that we have to understand, and I'm coming from a policy background, um, and I think there's a lot of great work. I mean, all of this, uh, the movement that you're seeing is coming from on the ground work. It's coming from activists. It's coming from people who are really speaking to their experience and combining that with their knowledge of what's happening, uh, not only on the ground, but in the system. And so um, for me, I want to look beyond a particular kind of slogan, and I'm not trying to dismiss it in any kind of way, but defund the police, I don't think captures... Uh, a lot, or it's not to me a literal thing. And from what I've heard from folks on, uh, you know, who are working on in this space, what we're saying, what, what is being said, and what, what I'm saying as well is the police do too much in our society. I mean, the police are asked to do too much in society and they continue, they also take, take responsibility to, uh, uh, to do things themselves. We've talked about mental health. We talked about substance misuse. We talked about even, you know, violence interruption and prevention work. Uh, there's, Policing is everywhere. And so the question I think we have to ask is, like, is that what we want in our society? And let me give you, let me, you, you mentioned uh, Mayor de Blasio and the NYPD. The NYPD's budget three years ago was around $5 billion. And that's a hefty amount, but it's a big city, right? Today, three years later, three, three and a half years later, the NYPD budget is $6 billion. It increased $1 billion in three years. And so the question is, why did it increase that much? And for what reason? For what public safety reason did we did New York City increase that that amount of money and what could that have you know money could have gone for otherwise I mean I will also say this Brad I mean like you're talking I think what we want to make sure of, of you know, what what contributes to public safety and I think that police do good policing does contribute absolutely to public safety but is it the center of public safety is your is your neighborhood is my neighborhood um, is it safe because there's a bunch there's a lot of police presence or is it safe because people around us people around me here have more opportunities and have the ability to live stable stable lives and so I think that's those are the things in that we're looking at and I started I, I to rant on this Brad but I just want to say one other thing I mean when you start with the conversation of defunding police or even looking at that slogan I think folks should first look at where in society we government has defunded already, especially when it comes to black and brown communities, because def, that defunding has happened for decades. And we're talking about in things like education and social services, but specifically in those neighborhoods and in those jurisdictions. So I think those are the places that 
you know, really we haven't paid attention to. And because we've defunded, now we're now people are looking at, well, where is that actual money now that should have come to these neighborhoods in the form of opportunities? Do you think, uh, let's just say for the sake of argument, uh, I don't know what Mayor de Blasio's precise proposal was. Maybe you do, but I don't. Uh, but let's say for the sake of argument, you said the New York City Police Department budget was $6 billion right now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What if we took $1 billion out of the New York City Police Department budget and used it for community job and health programs? Uh, do you think uh, that would reduce violence in the cities because people had more uh, access to jobs and health care? Yeah, I think so. And it's not only those longer, bigger term things where you need more than a billion dollars to do that. But I think those, that billion dollars could be directed towards in- institutions that are on the ground that are actually doing this work that are not necessarily affiliated with law enforcement. You have people like credible messengers, people who are the credible messengers have credibility because they the community knows them and they know the community and they go and actually interrupt violence. That is a research based evidence based technique that is happening around the country. But it is not nearly as fun. It's also it's not as costly. So overall, there are those types of strategies that need to be sustained over a longer period of time for a fraction of the cost that what what policing uh, costs a particular city. Okay, Uh, probably one last question for you, Ed, before we go. Uh, I was looking at a poll national survey that was done by uh, PBS and NPR uh, in the middle of last week. Uh, they asked Americans, uh, one thing I thought was very interesting is they asked Americans whether they viewed the demonstrations as protest or riots. And I found it very comforting that by a two to one margin, I think it was 61% to 31% that Americans viewed the demonstrations not as riots, uh, but as protest. Uh, and I found it also reassuring that not only did a majority of African-Americans ag- agree that they were protests and not raw riots, but also a majority of white Americans did, too. What does that figure tell you? It, it, it's something that is energizing to me, to be honest with you, to see that uh, the, the folks that have been working on this for a while that have that have a voice and collective voice are gonna make change. And this is absolutely going to happen. And I think one of the things that people are understanding is that if you're angry, that doesn't mean you're violent. If you're angry, that doesn't mean you're you're rioting. Um, Of course, we've seen fires and we've seen things like that, but the vast majority of people are angrily protesting. And what we need here are people who are angry and using that to point attention to the problems and then you know put pressure put consistent pressure on policymakers for long-term change yeah i found i energizing is a good way to put it i i found it very energizing that people can distinguish between riots and protest uh and if the president was able to do that we'd be a lot better off (laughs) i want to thank our guest ed chung Uh, from the Center of American Progress and a former official in the Justice Department uh, during Barack Obama's presidency. We'll be back with more of Deadline DC with Brad Bannon after these messages uh, with our provocative progressive political panel. Uh, Today on the panel, we have Montgomery County, Maryland, Council Member Will Zwando, who's 
talk about these issues at the local level and also political activist Mark J. Hey, Dad. Welcome back to Headline DC with Brad Bannon. I'm Brad Bannon. In this half hour, as usual, we'll have our provocative progressive political panel. Uh, But before that, I have... uh, I want to. Uh, this is a segment where uh, you get a piece of my mind, which is not to be confused with peace of mind. <laughs> a week after the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis on May 25th, I watched KABC's coverage of protest in Santa Monica, California. The video feed was a split screen helicopter video of the activity on the streets near the Santa Monica Pier. On the left hand side of the screen, Viewers saw a peaceful crowd of protesters, while the right screen showcased a group of vandals pillaging a sneaker store. The protesters were standing, so there really wasn't a lot to see in that frame. There was a lot more action on the right-hand side of the screen, and my eyes focused on the looters running into the stores empty-handed and outside loaded down with boxes. I wondered while I watched whether viewers would react more strongly to the protest, peaceful protesters uh, on the left or the looters on the right. The answer, fortunately, is that the innocent activists won the day. A national survey for PBS and National Public Radio conducted on June 2nd and 3rd indicated that Americans are twice as likely to see the demonstrations as, as protest rather than riots. A large majority of African-Americans and even most white Americans believe demonstrations are protests and not riots. The issue of confidence in the police will loom large in Congress this week when the Democratic leadership and the Congressional Black Caucus in the House propose a package of reforms to end police violence. These reforms include proposals to limit the immunity that police officers have against lawsuits and to eliminate racial profiling. Last week, local leaders took the initiative. Mayor Eric Garcetti proposed taking away $150 million in funding from the Los Angeles City uh, Police Department and redirecting, redirected the funds to youth jobs, health initiatives, and police centers to heal trauma. Minneapolis officials issued orders to police to end the use of chokeholds. The Attorney General of Minnesota, Keith Ellison, brought second-degree murder charges against Derek Chauvin, the police officer who killed Floyd. The Buffalo, New York, uh, New York Police Department suspended two policemen who shoved a protest to the ground and seriously injured the 75-year-old man. While a majority of both white and black Americans see the demonstrations as peaceful protest and not riots, there is a sharp racial division in the level of confidence in the police. Four out of every 10 white Americans have a great deal of confidence in the ability of police officers to treat all races fairly. Less than one in 10 African Americans feel the same way. Crises bring out the best, the worst in presidents. Herbert Hoover was indifferent to the suffering of the people during the Great Depression, while Franklin Roosevelt attacked the crisis aggressively. Donald Trump has taken a bad situation and made it worse. 
four days after Floyd's death, he called the peaceful protesters in Minneapolis thugs and added a threat that when the, quote, when the looting starts, the, the shooting starts. Twitter flagged the president's terrible tweet for glorifying violence. Uh, thank you, Twitter. Uh, Trump also ordered the National Guard forces to use pepper spray to clear innocent activists out of Lafayette Park so he could do a phony photo op in front of a church near the White House. Trump is utterly obsessed with order and completely empty of empathy. The public wants a chief executive who can strike the balance. Two out of every three Americans believe the president's response to the demonstrations protesting police brutality has increased political ha, racial tensions. Just about every Democrat, but few Republicans believe he has made things worse. The fact that three out of every four independents believe Trump has increased racial tensions is a very troubling sign for, the, for his reelection prospects. It's comforting to know that a majority of both white and black Americans fault the president's inept handling of the racial crisis. Nine in 10 African Americans feel that Trump has inflamed tensions. Almost two out of every three white Americans similarly fault his handling of the situation. There has been a sharp drop in presidential approval uh, since March and the advent of the COVID-19 pandemic and America's original pandemic, racism. Since Trump's net negative, since then, Trump's net negative rating has doubled uh, from minus 7% to minus 14%. The number of Americans who strongly disapproved of the president's performance jumped from 41% to 47%. Independents who strongly disapprove of the president's performance uh, increase by 10% from 33% to 44%. The decline in the president's performance ratings and his prospects for re-election should not be surprised. Trump has not been able to measure up to the two crises that have emerged so far this year to threaten the nation. In times of crisis, Americans want a president who can bring people closer together, not drive them further apart. You can read this column and my take on the presidential race in the Hill every Monday. Just Google muckrack.com, that's M-U-C-K-R-A-C-K, dot com, front slash Brad dash Bannon. Now it's time for a provocative progressive political panel. Our guest on the provocative progressive political panel today is Will Jawando, who is a council member at large for Montgomery County, Maryland, which is just outside Washington, D.C. Will is des described as a progressive political leader we need by revered civil rights activist and congressman John Lewis. Will has worked with House Democratic leader Nancy Pelosi, Senator Sherrod Brown, and then Senator Barack Obama. During the eight-year Obama administration, Will had the honor of serving as associate director of the White House Office of Public Engagement, followed by a position as an advisor to the U.S. Secretary of Education, Arne Duncan, in the U.S. Department of Education. Also on the panel today, as usual, uh, is progressive political activist Mark Rivaldi. Mark has worked on the Get Out Vote 
for several Democratic presidential candidates, including Joe Biden. Mark is also involved in campaign finance reform and philanthropic efforts for against cancer research, for cancer research. His Twitter handle is Mark J. Grimaldi. Uh, Will's Twitter handle is Will Jawando. That, that's J-A-W-A-N-D-O. Welcome, panel. Let's start with you, you, Will. Uh, I've seen uh, demonstrations in Montgomery County. I think I saw uh, news footage of a uh, demonstration in Bethesda, Maryland, which is in Montgomery County. Uh, have the demonstrations there been peaceful? Yes, uh, they have. And, and that's one of the points I'm glad you underlined in your monologue is that the vast majority across the country, but particularly, I think, 100 percent here in Montgomery County, and we've had many. Uh, I was at the one in Bethesda last week, had over a thousand participants. Uh, I was at another at in Silver Spring at Montgomery Blair High School and and this weekend, uh, one in Germantown. So all over the county, uh, we've had different sizes uh, and scale of demonstrations, but they've all been peaceful. People have been wearing their facial coverings and 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 uh, trying to be as responsible but as they can regarding COVID, but obviously expressing con serious concern and anger and sorrow and determination for change uh, that you've seen across the country. It's been amazing to me. I think they said up upwards of 450 cities and towns uh, have taken all over the country, all 50 states. We've never seen this level of protest and micro protest all around the country. It really underscores the desire for change. Okay, well, let me ask you this. You said there have been at least two large uh, demonstrations uh, in the aftermath of uh, George Floyd's murder. Uh, why have they been peaceful in Montgomery County and not so peaceful in other places? Uh, in other places, there have been all sorts of instances of police violence against uh, demonstrators and protesters. Uh, what makes uh, the what makes for peaceful demonstrations in Montgomery County? Well, I think, again, I would say I think the vast majority of protests across the country have been peaceful to the extent that you've seen some people take advantage and, you know, of of the justifiable anger and come in and loot and do things. Those are the minority, the vast minority. Uh, and I think the police department's role, too. You know, here our police department has not used those aggressive tactics in the protests, which is something you've seen in other places. And that obviously uh, doesn't help. So uh, I think that. Uh, those two combinations, the fact that, uh, you know, the, the organizers have put out the call for everyone to be peaceful and that our police have acted well, responsibly. Uh, Will, we're going to have to go to break now. Uh, when we get back with Deadline DC with Brad Bannon, well, more of our provocative progressive political panel. Follow Leslie on Twitter. Just go to www.twitter.com slash Leslie Marshall, and we'll be sure to share your tweets. Okay, welcome back to Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. Uh, we are in the middle of today's provocative progressive political panel. Um, our guest today, are uh, Will Juwando, who is a uh, county councilor at large in Montgomery County, Maryland, which is uh, a D.C. suburb. 
Uh, also on the panel today is progressive political activist uh, Mark Grimaldi. Uh, Mark, let's go to you now. Uh, the uh, polls that I've seen in the last few days uh, show that uh, Americans uh, think that the president, President Trump, have, has handled uh, his approach to the demonstration, these demonstrations across the country and the shooting of uh, Jim and Floyd, uh, that he's handled these the situation badly. Uh, what do you think? I think it's obvious to, you know, anyone, regardless of their political leanings that he's handled it extremely poor. Um, he's done nothing but inflame the situation since the beginning of the protests really becoming large. He tweeted out that when the looting uh, starts, the shooting starts, which you know has a racist past of its own, but it's also literally inferring violence, which you know Twitter, credit to them, actually blocked it and put a warning on it. And you know his his attempts you know, were to, to, to use that rhetoric. And then when the protests showed up at his doorstep in Washington, D.C., uh, in front of the White House, obviously, and we all now have seen footage of peaceful protesters being attacked, um, and their efforts have been to distort whether or not tear gas is tear gas, you know, are pepper balls tear gas, which, by the way, they are, and the CDC defines them both as chemical agents, um, you know, Bill Barr on, uh, you know, the, the, in his interview yesterday seemed to be debating semantics around that. You know, it's just been Trump saying, oh, well, Barr ordered people to, you know, come and disperse the protesters that way. He was challenged about it. He said, well, I, I gave, you know, an order to do it. I didn't say how to do it. You know, it's been nothing but the worst response you could possibly think of. And then doubling down on those responses. We even just heard the White House press secretary today uh, asked if the Trump administration had any regrets for that violent reaction. And of course, no, no regrets is, is their, uh, you know, attitude about it. And, you know, in He's the meantime, regrets about anything no, that, no, of knowledge. course, of course not. And in the meantime, you know, they, they keep trying to uh, distort the facts, which th they do about any crisis that hits this White House, you know, self-created or not. And yesterday, in the meantime, you have in Virginia, a man who thankfully was charged today uh, for intentionally driving his car into a group of protesters in Virginia. Yeah, I saw that. And we found out today he's the head of the KKK in Virginia, uh, Harry H. Rogers. So it's like you could just declare them a terrorist organization, focus on that. There's been plenty of reporting how white supremacists have been intentionally trying to uh, get interspersed with the protests and create violence and then have the peaceful protesters blamed for this violence to create that image in the media. I mean, that, and of course, you know, the Trump administration has not denounced that, has not talked about the white supremacists. And, and the biggest thing is he has not tried to work on healing this nation either in, mat in matters of policy as we all know, or even just in matters of rhetoric, just a basic, you know, read the teleprompter speech. If nothing else, you don't inflame things, you know, but it's been everything else that the Trump administration has been uh, responsible for a lot of the problems that have happened. And even if they're not, they somehow get their hand in there and make it worse, um, you know, and it's just been really disheartening to see that when on the other side, I am heartened, as Will said, 
to see the response by so many Americans from so many different walks of life, whether it be race, religion, you know, socioeconomic status, come together and respond peacefully, but with force of voice and energy, risking their lives. We, that, that has to be noted. These people are risking their lives during a pandemic to come out and say enough is enough, we want change, and we are literally, literally willing to lay our lives on the line to make it happen. And what's more powerful than that, you know, I, I don't know. I, I'm glad to see it finally happen, because honestly, as someone, you know, the three of us can talk about, we're all very involved in this space every day, Will especially, especially you as an elected official, Brad and I both in what we do for our jobs, we see this and it's, we wonder sometimes like, you know, knock, knock, is anyone home? When, when are people going to, always, people always say, when are we gonna take to the streets and do something about this? Well, it's been building, especially on this situation, even before uh, Trump was president, you know, we saw this problem systemic in different police departments throughout the United States, the only positive change we saw happen really was the Obama administration incentivizing police departments to get funding when they would train their retrain their police departments. You had the Department of Justice uh, having nonpartisan evaluations of these police departments identify where the problems were and incentivize improvements which were working. And then, of course, you know, I don't have to tell you the Trump administration takes over and takes all that uh, away and disassembles it just like they did with the pandemic response team. So yeah, it's been an absolute disaster, Brad and Will. Uh, Will, let me ask you this uh, in your uh, capacity as a, a local government elected official. Uh, last Late last week, uh, Mayor Eric Garcetti of Los Angeles announced that he was essentially uh, taking $150 million away uh, from the Los Angeles uh, Police Department and redirecting the money to programs for youth jobs uh, health and health care. Uh, and the mayor's theory is that if we had spending more money on programs that might prevent violence, uh, like jobs and health care, uh, we would have uh, less need for... Uh, for, you know, confrontations with the police department. Uh, how do you feel about that? And did it, would it work for Montgomery County? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I'll lead with, you know, an unnamed senior official in our police department who told me off the record more than uh, almost two years ago as I was getting ready to head into my first budget. Look, you know, I have to publicly say I want the extra officers, but would I rather have you put them in the Department of Recreation or Health and Human Services for after school programs that helps keep kids uh, busy during, you know, the hours from three to seven when that's when kids are most likely, we know from research, to get in trouble. That's what happened to my friend who was killed as, as a high schooler. Uh, and, you know, so the answer is yes. I mean, of course, there's a big, there's one budget pie and you have to make decisions about where it goes. And we all say kind of you know, those, those of us in government, many of us say budgets are moral documents and, you know, and but if they really are, uh, you have to justify where the money goes in a certain. And, you know, while I'm not in the the uh, camp of uh, abolishing police, of course, we need law enforcement. We do need to reimagine and re-envision what policing looks like. Um, you know, this stats driven policing 
where you know you you get more money and 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 accolades and and promotion if you arrest more people if you write more tickets uh, that's not the focus. We need guardians, not warriors. We want people who protect and serve. And so we need to change uh, who's on our police force, how they police. Uh, we need to view arrests and citations as the last resort, not the first resort. And, and, and that's certainly true with use of force and violence. So we need to flip on its head the incentive structure. And that, of course, when you do something like that, when you have a new vision, that's going to necessitate different funding. Uh, for example, do we need to have police in our schools when we don't have enough nurses and counselors? Uh, those are, you know, that's something we're going to be working on here in Montgomery County. Uh, we have police in, in schools. And when you look at the data uh, on one side of how, how that leads to more incarceration and more arrests for particularly students of color, and then you have that the same schools, you have ratios of students to counselors or students to nurse of one to 1300 or, you know, horrible, you know, that that's an easy choice for me that that needs to be changed. But there certainly are other things that we need to look at. Um, so while I wouldn't put a number on it right now, I'm certainly in our role as oversight and as having role over the budget. That's certainly a conversation we need to have. Okay. Uh, Will, uh, thanks very much for joining us for the provocative progressive political panel. I hope you can join us soon again. Uh, sure. But that's all for today, folks. Uh, thanks to my guest, Ed Chung from the Center for American Progress, Montgomery County, Maryland, Council Member at Large, Will Jawando, and progressive political activist, Mark Grimaldi. I'm here Mondays at 3 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time if the Lord is willing and the creek don't rise. This is Brad Bannon. Stay strong, stay safe, and don't drink the Clorox or the Kool-Aid. I don't care what the president says. We'll be back next week at 3 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time uh, with more Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. Thanks, Brad. Will, say hello to your wife for me. I will. Good to see hope you Michelle, Thank you. Hope Michelle and the family are doing well. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Will. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks, guys. If you miss Leslie on TV this week, catch up at LeslieMarshallShow.com.